Hey everybody, welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Tom, and for our first uh, time, we got a guest uh, sitting in with us. Say your name. Hey, Kevin, everybody. How you doing? Good. Uh, Kevin and I are mutual film fanatics. We kind of actually, uh, we're ironically from the same town, and we are both uh, kind of connected by uh, another film podcast, Film Spotting. So if you're a Film Spotting listener as well, welcome to the show. Uh, today's show, we're picking a nerdy movie. That's right. This is a nerdy movie, not a good movie or a bad movie. This is actually, this could qualify for both depending on your take, but this is probably the nerdiest of this particular movie series. That's right. This is part of a trilogy. It's from 1989. It was actually the third highest grossing film that year. Uh, Batman, of course, was the highest grossing, but this one came in third. It features Christopher Lloyd, not Crispin Glover. And, of course, in um, his iconic part as Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox, we're talking about Back to the Future Part Two. I gotta say, this is probably the, uh, I mean, fairly, uh, it's easy to argue this is the nerdiest because of all the crazy stuff they do in this one. Kind of the one that I think, I think you and I both can agree has the most you can talk about. And I know some people don't like Back to the Future 2 at all, but some people love it the most. That's one of the reasons I, it definitely fits the nerdy category more than any other one. It's the one everyone talks about. What's your take? Yeah, man, I, I, uh, this is actually, uh, I'm so glad you asked me to do this because, um, this was the first of the Back to the Future movies that I actually remember seeing. Um, I, I, I was, you know, obviously too young, uh, to have seen it in theaters. Um, but, um, I did see the next year I saw part three. My mom took me to see it in theaters. Uh, and I had not at that point seen the other ones. Uh, and, but this is the one I actually remember the most uh, from my childhood. Um, I saw it on VHS at a friend of mine's house randomly one day, um, and I just couldn't get over how um, great, uh, fun, how much great fun it is. Yes, uh, even uh, even as a kid. Uh, and talk about nerdy. I mean, you you hit it, man. I've got a whole list of things. I rewatched it yesterday just to uh, prepare for this and. Um, I've got a whole list of just the nerdiest stuff, especially the stuff uh, in the um, in the opening act when they go to uh, go into the future for the first time. Yes, um, the the future of two thousand fifteen. <laughs> right. That, hey, uh, that's me too. I, and I think it's funny when you think about the things they predicted. That they were right about some stuff. They were wrong about a lot of stuff, but. Uh, you know, the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, and they almost made it to the World Series in 2015. So, you, you, they had a feeling. Yeah, I remember the. I'm a baseball fan too, so I remember the. <laughs> I remember the. Um, all the talk about uh, how what if this ha- what if it happens what if Back to the Future Part Two predicted the Cubs in 2015, uh, and I always thought that was so uh, so so funny. But I, I think that whole sequence when doc and marty go um into the future for the first time um and you see all the kind of retrofitted 80s stuff um yeah 80s nostalgia they predicted 80s nostalgia (laughs) yeah so i just i just think all that stuff is uh so good um you know michael j fox playing multiple characters obviously um and something that's smart about these movies i think too is the way 
the sequences resemble the sequences in the other movies, even in different time periods, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, like, you know, there's always a dinner table scene uh, or a, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that keeps playing back, uh, uh, you know, back over. Oh, like he's, he ends up getting hit over the head and knocked out. And so he's being woken up by Leah Thompson who plays his mom, right. Uh, who plays Marty's mom, obviously. And um, in, in all the different time periods. So, so like the stuff that happens in part two mirrors the same scenes that happen in part one and, and then continues um, as, as part two evolves. I really think it's interesting how the screenplay kind of doubles back on those moments. And then even as it goes on, sort of gives them another wrinkle with the time travel paradox stuff and the alternate 1985 and all that. And what's interesting, this movie also kind of addresses something without actually saying it, which is Marty actually did get changed. Like the film does a really, they don't, you know, Doc doesn't say it, but, but Doc knows Marty was changed after the events of the first one. Because that, you know, when we constantly get these, his, uh, when you call him chick, starts getting him angry about it. We don't see that in the first movie at all. Because we, I, I rewatched that one today with my kids, and not once do we see Marty being this, like, uh, having some anger management issues or like uh problems about being like a coward you know he doesn't have that it, but uh, something that they don't they don't directly say but doc clearly knows what happened because when marty starts to vanish in the first one he changes into the new marty he just has his old memories but he's got all the 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 new alternate version marty in him it, it's a nice little carefully subtle adjustment they give into him which i think is really interesting about that and, you know, we're talking about, like, you know, the things that I think is interesting. Also, you have just the uh, the twists of certain things, you know, like the idea that um, how much of a loser future Marty is. Right. Um, and, George. Right. He, it, it's, it's like the history repeating thing is like, are we doomed to become our parents? Parents. Uh, right. Like it is, it is, is. Um, and I mean, even it gets it, even in terms of like playing into the ideas of like achieving the American dream or the eighties version of the American dream, right? Like, like money and success over following your actual dreams. Um, you know, what happens to a person when they, when they give into like their flaws, right? Which, which Marty's clearest flaw is the, his proud sort of, I'm never going to back down from any sort of fight and the, you know, it, d that whole refrain that happens every time he meets Biff, there's some sort of, you know, you're a chicken. And he's like, nobody calls me chicken. You know, that whole, um, he almost becomes, I think it's really interesting too, how this movie plays with other, mo other movies, especially, oh, yeah. um, uh, especially Westerns, right? So like the classic uh, Clint Eastwood spaghetti Westerns um, are directly referenced, especially in the second and third movies. The third movie actually, is pretty much just a western well it's a tribute um, to like basically classic westerns and that's yeah and this one is you know two is basically a tribute to i i guess you kind of control like all futuristic movies because robert zemeckis even said he didn't really want to go in the future because he's like we always get stuff wrong but he's like let's just go as crazy as possible and they got some stuff right they got some stuff that was impossible i mean to this, you know, when 2015 hit, I was very angry. I did not have my hoverboard. <laughs> right. And we then what they on this hoverboard. <laughs> and then what they passed off as a hoverboard was that sort of skateboard thing with one wheel or whatever that came out. 
I don't know, a few years ago. Oh, I remember all of them catching fire. I, I was a mail carrier in 2016. There were a lot of kids on the streets with those crashes. Right. right. So, I yeah. think it's I think it's cool that you mentioned um, like how how like boldly into the silliness this movie goes. Um, I read uh, as I often do. I read. I went back and looked at Roger Ebert's re- original review of the movie. Um, which he liked a little bit less, I think, than the than the first movie. But he said, Back to the Future Part 2 is an exercise in goofiness. Uh, this is the first paragraph of his review. An excursion into various versions of the past and future that is so baffling that even the characters are constantly trying to explain it to each other. I should have brought a big yellow legal pad to the screening so I could take detailed notes just to keep the timeline straight. And yet the movie is fun, mostly because it's so screwy. And I... And I I was noting some things about that this time, like just how much of a treasure Christopher Lloyd is as an actor. Yeah. I mean, what a gift that guy is, you know, like he perfect choice for Doc Brown. Oh my gosh. Like, like you can't fathom anyone else. I'm um, sorry if you hear a train in the background. It's uh, I live near the train track. So Me too. I'm expecting it to hit us. In a <laughs> so there you go. But um, I don't know, man. I just love that stuff. Like, there's a scene towards the end of part two when um, when they when they go back to 1955, right? And and Marty's like, or sorry, Doc is like running back and forth, and Marty's kind of following him, and it's just like this physical kind of slapstick screwball comedy. Which the first movie has its moments with that kind of thing, but the the part two really nails it, and I think. Some, sometimes to a fault like i think some that might be some people's criticism of it um but i think yeah, it's, it's more comedy than as adventure but that's the point you know they want it to be not exact copy of the first one exactly and and you know some people might like ebert seems to be arguing like it, it's complicated and and i think that that's the most fun thing about time travel stories is the idea of like trying to keep track of it even even though I would advise people against trying to keep track of it and just kind of have fun, you know, like it, it's, it's like, you don't like, I feel like going into a movie trying to point out the flaws and the holes in the, in the script, especially when it's a time travel story is just, man, just sit back and have fun. Like this is meant to blow your mind a little bit and just be a good time. Well, think about this. We have four bits in this movie, four bits. That alone is like a mind bender when you think of it, because you have 1955 Biff, 1985 Biff, 19, I mean, uh, 2015 Old Man Biff, and then we have 1985 A Biff, which is who I refer to as Biff uh, Trump, because it's, <laughs> it really is Donald Trump. The hair, everything, it's like the hotel, it's like, you know, it's Biff Towers. It's like they went Donald Trump, and it's funny that they go there now. It's that's another weird, eerie prediction kind of. A, but what's even more kind of messed up is you heard about the deleted scene, right? I don't think so. Okay, so when Biff comes, when Old Biff returns with the time machine, you see him kind of falling down as if he's in pain. Apparently, in night in the mid nineties, Lorraine kills him, like shoots him dead. And what he's happened is the time's catching up, filling the gunshot in his chest. And he starts to disappear. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, they yeah. Le- they got that and they decided to cut it because they they were trying to actually th- tone it down a little bit because everything with nineteen eighty five a was so dark 
when they wrote it, it was funny, but as they were filming, they realized how bleak it was. There, you never see the sunshine at all in 1985A, which it's supposed to. I think they're only supposed to be there maybe like five hours at most. But the idea is like it's such a they Biff going back in time completely ruins everything. There's an argument that he's the or, that Hill Valley's so polluted because of everything Biff's done that there's no sun. It's such a bizarre thing. There's a scene that they cut where uh, Marty runs into his older brother, who's uh, just a, a stumbling alcoholic who's homeless. He's been kicked out of Biff Towers, and they were going to have his sister in it, but sh- uh, the actress couldn't do it, and she was going to be a uh, working in a brothel. So it's like, every, it's like the, the you couldn't think of like worse situations. Yeah, that's wild. I, I hadn't heard any of that stuff, but I mean, I, going back to the um, old Biff, young Biff. 2015 Biff, all the different Biffs. Oh, and Griff, we forgot about it. And Griff, right, right, right. I mean, There's like five Biffs. T- Thomas F. Wilson is the actor that plays Biff and Griff, and then and then obviously um, in the uh, in the third one, I guess what's uh, Buford, Mad Dog, yes. right? And I mean that guy is a terrific actor. I I, I can't like I, it's I I can't think of anything else I've ever seen that guy in. Other than a Back to the Future, he, it was he had the bad luck of doing a lot of like TV stuff that never took off. Like, I, believe it or not, he actually was. Go- they were going to make uh, um, Turner and Hooch into a TV show, and he was just, he was supposed to be the star of that. And it didn't. They they wanted not doing it. Right, it's good. I mean, so he's he, he's just never had that luck. Yeah, he's so great that the uh, going back to what you said about like him as a representation of Donald Trump. Which I mean, I wrote this. This I kind of wrote this down as I was watching the rewatching the movie yesterday. Like, like this this movie's sort of answering the question, like what happens when a power hungry, egomaniacal buffoon, you know, becomes rich, builds massive pleasure palaces for himself, then like in some ways takes over the government, takes over a town, right? Like well, off the whole town, right? Like he just owns the town, right? Which is what like some of these you know big wealthy people like kind of have no sense of reality of what's you know what's right and good like money kind of destroys your sense of what's what's good and you know obviously biff was a a bully to begin with so like a bully gaining that kind of power is uh pretty interesting to think about um and you see how the town crumbles because of that right like the town he can, he, there's no, it, money's never going to be a problem for him because he's got the almanac. He can always keep betting and just keep, you know, he can burn money like crazy. He knows the future uh, up to a point. I suspect there's a point where like the almanac is, gets wasted because it, eventually he's caused so much destruction that events don't happen. But that point being is like, there's a period of time where he could just do whatever he wants. Cause he could just keep scoring money off more gambling and, you know, they point out he doesn't he can't even use it for a couple of years because he has to, he can't gamble until he's 21 so when he turns 21 instant money right which uh, a, a part of the reason why you know we find out that you know Marty didn't get a race because he didn't get the chance to kill George until after Marty was born and you know that's another uh, and of course that was actually written because uh, Christian Glover refused to come back for the movie so they decided to kill him off originally it was supposed to be set believe it or not in the 1960s it, the idea was uh, you go. Um, I, I've heard two different reasons. They wanted it to be set in the '60s just to do a different time period, but uh, Robert Zemeckis didn't like the idea of the McFlies being hippies. Which I was like, yeah, I, I could see that <laughs> not working. 
but the other uh, uh, option was the idea was he goes to 1967 uh, to bet on the Jets or 1969 to bet on the Jets when uh-huh. the Super- that's where he gets his big money. And, you know, the, the idea, but I think it makes more sense that, you know, Marty triggers that memory when he reenacts the, uh, the skateboarding bit. And it's like that it fits it's like the whole point Biff would be thinking about that is like, this all seems really familiar. Right, right, right. Um, and you mentioned, I guess, for the for the listener who uh, hasn't seen this in a while, you mentioned the, the almanac, and that's Gray's sports almanac, right? The um, the book that Marty buys, thinking he's going to go uh, use the time machine to gamble, um, and that that being kind of the, um, I guess, what would you call that? Um, that's it's kind of the thing that drives the plot of the movie, yeah. right? Like like it's the sports almanac that that um, puts all this in motion. And there's so many great payoffs uh, with that, too, uh, especially when he goes back to 1955 to kind of fix the mistake. And it just it just adds another kind of like they have to there's it's it's the MacGuffin they have to search for. It's I mean, really, they could just go back. A little, they could go back to like 30 minutes before he buys it and stops him from buying it. Uh, they, but they don't. By that point, they kind of have to go back further because the time's so changed. Right. There's some kind of hilarious bits about that. Uh uh, what's funny, I was also the guy who suggested that Marty place a bet, believe it or not, that's uh, Charles Fleischer, the actor, and that's the guy who's the, who played Roger Rabbit. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so, uh, so, and of course, that was the movie Robert Zemeckis did in between Back to Future uh, 1 and 2. He did Roger right. So he was like, I'm, of course, I'm going to have this guy in it because he had Christopher Lloyd, and the only person he didn't have, believe it or not, appears to have just been uh, Michael J. Fox. So it, it's, uh, and of course, uh, I think what's neat is those little surprise cameos throughout the movie. You know, you see they brought almost everybody back. They brought back the principal, <laughs> Strickland. Right. And you see him again. You see his ancestor is the, the sheriff in the third one. Right. And, and like I said, the, the details are what's in it. It's like the set, the the, ta- the clap tower constantly is being adjusted through different time periods. You know, the first one, you don't see a uh, crack in, you don't see any damage to the ledge until after Doc breaks that, uh, breaks it in the sec- at the end of the first one. And you throughout the movies, you can't see it. In the future, you see they got a digital clock up there. Right. And the, um, I like, I, you know, I, I shared that thing that I, I wrote uh, with you. And I had noticed that too, like um, how as another sort of plot device, I guess a, a really like kind of on the nose clever marker of time right is the is the the clock itself the clock tower in hill valley right and it's the thing that like everything's sort of anchored to that through all three movies and i just think that that's such a really interesting this movie's really good uh, all three of the movies are but this movie's really good at like finding those specific details that you're talking about to anchor us to the to the changing time periods and the fact that they use a clock for that is just the nerdiest, most clever thing I've ever heard of. I, I love that about this. Um, and I really think that that's a, a smart, um, it makes it a smarter movie than it, than it actually seems to be on the surface. If you, if you, if you're just, in, you know, watching it for entertainment purposes, which it's highly entertaining and, uh, you know, super fun to watch. But those kinds of like specific attention to detail things are all about what Zemeckis is about as a filmmaker too. Like if you watch any of his other movies, he's very detailed, visually detailed. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, this Forrest Gump works the way that 
reason Castaway works the way it is. There's a reason Contact, which I've told a lot of people you've not seen, that's another fantastic science fiction movie by him, has such incredible details. It's the it's the process. There's so much going on. Yeah, that's a that's a thing that um I I listen to this other podcast called Blank Check. Have you ever heard of that? I'm what did you say? This, this, this podcast called Blank Check. Have you heard of that? I've heard Blank Check a few times. Yeah, so they cover filmog like director filmography filmographies. They do one episode on each film, and um, Mar- uh, I'm glad we watched this because uh, Robert Zemeckis just won their little uh, March Madness bracket, and so they're going to be covering his entire filmography uh, next fall uh, on their podcast. And I'm really, really super stoked to go back and watch some of his other movies too that I haven't seen in a while, like What Lies Beneath and um, Contact, like you said, which I haven't seen in 15 years or 20 years, maybe even. Um, so, like, I, I'm I'm super stoked about it. I'm glad, and I'm glad, you know, we got the opportunity to um, dig back into this. Uh, it had been a while since I'd seen it. All right, well, uh, you may hear in the background, my uh, daughter is wanting some attention. So I think we'll go ahead and call it an end for there. Uh, but anyway, uh, thanks for uh, sitting in. We'll do some more in the next few weeks uh, with coronavirus. I'm sure we all have plenty of time to not really worry about these things. So, For sure, man. I'm down to do this anytime you want. Uh, I'll uh, leave by just saying uh, – Feel free to revisit this movie, everybody who's listening yeah. to this, and uh, you know, it, let it let it happen, let it wash over you. It is a blast. This, if you haven't seen it since you were a kid, especially, it is so so fascinating and great. I'd, I'd say watch the whole trilogy again. It's a great, yeah, exactly. It's a great com- it's comfort food, but more importantly, it's the nerdy comfort food that scratches that itch. It's it hits nostalgia. It's comedy. It's action adventure. It's what you what's it's something good to watch to make you feel great. Anyway. My name's Tom. You've been listening to Tom and Kevin. I hope you guys have had fun. This is the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy podcast. We'll see you all next time. See you later.